You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this podcast, a recording from the second webinar organised as part of Framing Ageing, a clinical, cultural and social dialogue. Panel 4, Memory and Experience, featured three speakers. The third speaker was Associate Professor Gillian Pye from University College Dublin, who presented on Happiness as Emotional Experience and Narrative Process in Literary Counts of Old Age. A video of the webinar including the slides used by the speakers, is available on the project website, framingaging.ucd.ie, and on UCD Humanities Institute's YouTube channel. Thanks so much, and thanks very much for the invitation and, and for all the work organising this, keeping us all going. I really appreciate it. The background to this paper is my interest in happiness and well-being as manifested in a contemporary happiness industry, Of course, philosophical interest in what makes a satisfying life goes back uh, at least to antiquity, but this issue has never been more dominant than it is today. The role of data in understanding human behaviours, the impact of health technologies, the changes wrought by the digital revolution and globalisation, concerns about the human impact on the environment, these have all given uh, new meaning to the quest for well-being. And today, governments measure social success by means of World Happiness Reports and the World Happiness Index, Many large employers offer well-being initiatives and indeed UCD Wellbeing Hub was launched this month. A tsunami of popular books and magazines promise to help individuals find their way to happiness. Although there's no doubt that high levels of well-being are desirable for societies and for individuals, as Will Davis, Sarah Ahmed, Rob Bodice and many others have pointed out, as a technology of the self, well-being can be coercive when aligned to neoliberal goals of efficiency and productivity and to a dubious notion of agency that makes the individual responsible for effective self-regulation and self-authorship. I'm not so much interested in what happiness is as in what it does. How does this powerful technology of the self shape the social imaginary? How does it impact on discourses of self and other? And in today's paper, I just want to consider older age as reflected in literary narratives as a particularly interesting lens through which to explore some of these questions. You will have noticed already that I've been using several terms interchangeably, namely happiness, life satisfaction and well-being. And the reason for that is because this is actually often the case in current literature on the topic. This is part of a long debate, much of which has centred on the relationship between embodied pleasure on one hand and on the other, the evaluation of life as successful and satisfying. The use by contemporary psychology of classical Greek terms hedonistic to refer to feelings of happiness and eudaimonic to donate happiness as a considered satisfaction, underscores that this dichotomy is ongoing. Currently, the convention is to reconcile the two in the concept of subjective well-being, which is defined as, quote, a combination of positive affect and general life satisfaction, end quote. Subjective well-being is perhaps a neat response to the multidimensional nature of the phenomenon, but it's underpinned by the problematic idea that, quote, happiness is a positive emotional state that is subjectively defined by each person, end quote. And typically scientific research into subjective well-being relies on individual self-reporting. 
However, if we can understand ourselves as happy, then something shapes this understanding, namely a social and cultural imaginary powered by scripts and fed by a range of narratives. Increasingly, it's recognised that understanding what happiness does involves interrogating the relationship between emotions and narrative processes. And for this reason, as literary specialists, we ought to be interested in happiness. If we've not been interested, it's because we've been more concerned, perhaps rightly, with suffering and exclusion. We've been wary of trite, happy endings and ignorant bliss. And I'm not suggesting that literary scholarship should turn away from unhappiness, but rather that it's worthwhile exploring the powerful discourses of happiness and well-being, perhaps precisely because of the way they're implicated in exclusion and in suffering. An interest in well-being is central to notions of positive ageing and to a holistic approach to older age that looks beyond physical decline and values the whole of the life course. Older age offers a really interesting test case for thinking about happiness because it sharpens the focus on the relationship between physical experience and life narrative. International research has also reported that individuals experience U-shaped happiness trajectories. Subjective well-being dips in middle age but generally rises as people get older, thus undermining the commonly held belief that well-being is simply and directly related to the physical peak of youth. Furthermore, the experiences of those living with dementia raise important questions about the extent to which coherent narrative is necessary for flourishing. Questions about how well-being might be related to questions of agency and about how we communicate and share happiness with one another, particularly across generations. And all of this shines a critical light on narrow notions of well-being aligned to neoliberal ideals, which privilege the capacity to function efficiently, to contribute to society and to exercise autonomy. Particularly because they offer meta-perspectives on the issue of narrative and the individual experience of emotions, literary texts can offer interesting insights into these questions. Questions of home and happiness, intergenerational concepts of well-being and happiness, and the relationship between well-being and physical and mental agency all figure strongly in contemporary novels and stories centered on older age. In their recent volume, Care Home Narratives, Sally Chivers and Ulla Kribeneg explore the nursing home as, quote, a cultural repository for fears and hopes about an aging population. And Paul has obviously written on this topic too. They show how literary narratives set in care homes are an important and increasingly common vehicle for exploring social and cultural anxieties associated with well-being and age. This is an international trend, and in the last part of my paper, I just want to make a few remarks drawn from my reading of some European novels. As far as I know, these are not yet translated into English, but I'll just give English translations of the titles here for speed. So the novels include Victor Hugo Mai's The Spanish Making Machine from the Portuguese, Camille Peretti's We Will Grow Old Together from the French, and Jens Schwarzschild's Life Takes a Long Time, and Annette Paint's House of Tortoises, both from the German. All of these texts reflect the care home as a place where conventions of happiness and well-being are challenged, but might also be critically renegotiated. In their portrayal of the experience of ageing in the care home space, these novels all emphasise the performative aspect of happiness. They cast a satirical glance at the way in which this is reflected in the physical space, observing the way in which accessories such as wall art or furnishings communicate homeliness, but inevitably jar with the ugly and practical necessities of care. The novels show visitors, staff and residents consciously performing cheeriness for one another. In all of the novels, institutionalised happiness is revealed to be rather coercive, as elderly residents are expected to join in the performance. In Shpashu's Life Takes a Long Time, for example, 
an elderly lady's sudden memory of expulsion during the war threatens to undermine a lively group activity on the theme of food. She is swiftly silenced with the advice that this will be saved for another activity specially devoted to the theme of flight and expulsion. This comic scene deploys memories in an active performance of well-being, but this is at odds with both personal feelings and the life narrative of the individual. In Victor Mai's text, the central figure Antonio, who is moved to a care home after the death of his wife, refuses to play along with the imperative to be happy. Here he invokes the power of the killjoy as a means to resist implication and a fantasy of well-being, a public performance to preserve order. As the doctor in Mai's text tells an elderly resident, your only job now is to be happy and enjoy life, revealing the care home as a space of ambivalence in a complex discourse of well-being. For the middle-aged visitors in these novels, it can exacerbate anxieties about failing to live a happy, happy and fulfilled life. For others, it seems to offer a space of shelter from the demands of the outside world. In either case, ageing is revealed in its entanglement with a social imaginary of happiness as a technology of the self, which involves measuring and controlling effective performance. In all the novels, performing happiness underpins family and personal relationships. A genuinely felt desire for the well-being of a loved one is shown to exist in a delicate balance with the need for and expectation of a performance of happiness that ensures mutual stability. In Annette Payne's novel, for example, a woman tries to entertain her mother with a bird table. Her frustration is matched only by that of the elderly lady who hates it, but cannot speak and is forced to sit and look at it. In Camille Peretti's text, this painful charade is taken to further extremes. A lady who has dementia believes that her husband is actually her lover. He who adores her and likens his first kiss with his wife to winning the lotto must play along with her imagined illicit bliss in order to ensure some sense of stability. Undermining a dominant discourse of happiness as effective performance and as manifested in a harmony with self and other, doing happiness is revealed as fundamentally asymmetrical. This asymmetry is exposed particularly in intergenerational relationships in which partners not only have profoundly different historical experiences and thus expectations of happiness, but are also perhaps unable to perform emotions in a mutually intelligible way. In the example from Annette Paint's novel mentioned above, the lady whose daughter brings her the bird table wants to show her that she recognises her daughter's tiredness and frustration, but when she tries to signal this, her daughter mistakes it as a sign she's thirsty. All of these novels reflect in some way or other the need for coherent life narrative in the experience and performance of well-being. In Jens Schwarzschuh's comic novel, Life Takes a Long Time, the central figure Titus Pauser is a small-time newspaper editor and journalist who loses his job after German reunification and finds alternative employment with a company specialising in producing biographies of ordinary people, printing small vanity editions for the elderly to gift to their family and friends. The business feeds on a contemporary culture in which personal narratives and life satisfaction are part of visible public performances, for example, in social media and reality TV. Titus has established good relations with the old Ferry House nursing home, which he visits regularly to drum up business. This novel, like Sparshu's earlier work, The Indoor Fountain, reflects on well-being as it is negotiated in the space between embodied experience, the need for coherent life narrative, and the pressure for declarative well-being in performances of self-optimization. In one scene, an elderly lady proofreads her biography and does not immediately recognize um, that Titus has actually given her someone else's manuscript 
and the story is not even hers. Indeed, she's initially very pleased with it. This is echoed by Titus's hapless colleague, Schulze, who copies and pastes between biographies, insisting that his cliched formulations are what makes his text comprehensible to their readers. For the ordinary person, at least, an independent self-evaluation of life well lived is shown to be heavily dependent on dominant cultural scripts, repeated and reworked, sometimes into meaninglessness. But Titus's encounter with the enigmatic former museum curator, Dr. Einhorn, an expert on the poet and botanist Adalbert von Chamiso, gives him the opportunity to reconsider the experience of future and past horizons and the role of narrative in a sense of agency and life satisfaction. Titus's own unhappiness rests on his difficulty making sense of his own life, but his work with Dr. Einhorn decenters his focus. In particular, he realizes that assimilating individual experiences into a homogenous and coherent whole under the pressure of dominant scripts tends to involve giving the self a starring role rather than the more realistic position of supporting role or bit part. Instead of conferring agency and coherence, casting the self in the lead role can actively undermine well-being. With this real realization comes a sense that the self is perhaps not the place where well-being occurs at all. And that's it from me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Framing Aging. For more information on the project and to access podcasts and videos from our events, check out the project website at framingaging.ucd.ie.